haven't seen the most recent episode of Game of Thrones? What? Well, if you don't want to be spoiled about that episode, then come back to this podcast after you've watched. Hope you enjoy. Donald, what about you? Uh, any comments on the House of Black and White stuff with Arya? I'm still scratching my head trying to figure out, you know, what, is this just uh, a funeral home? Is that what this place is? It seems like they were doing more mortician work for me. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series. Now, I have to be honest, Matt. Before I talk about this chapter, I have to talk about that. I know last week's podcast, we had some tough audio quality, but that was no reason to cut the podcast short when we had such a lengthy discussion of Joffrey 1. You're listening to Podcast Winterfell. Clearly, you all didn't listen to my two ARIA podcasts. Yeah. Hey, hey, Matt, we listened. We just didn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Podcast Winterfell 308, What the Lores Tell Us, where we are going to be looking at some of the histories and lores from the Blu-rays of Season 6. And we'll be covering a couple of subjects that involves this person. Jamie Lannister looks like the attractive sales manager who enthusiastically comes through the telemarketing section, taking a piece of paper off each desk, then crumpling it up and tossing it towards the wastebasket way over on the other side of the room, and then celebrates the fact that he did make one out of 17 attempts as he goes back into his office without bothering to pick up the other 16 that he missed. Yeah? No? Let me know what you think, and... Send me yours. I love these. These are funny. These are great. And uh, we're going to spring all of these on Donald in a future episode to see which ones he likes or laughs at or doesn't like or doesn't laugh at. They don't have to be funny. It's just better when they are. So if you like that one, let me know and submit your own. You can do so by going to podcastwinterfell.com where you can find all of the back episodes and more importantly, our contact links like at Winterfell Pod on Twitter or podcastwinterfell at gmail.com for emails. Or you can call 314-669-1840 and leave a voicemail. You can do any of that in order to send those to me or any thoughts that you have about this podcast or about Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire. All feedback is welcome. Podcastwinterfell.com is also where you can find podcast app links. And if you would take the time to leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you use, I'll thank you right here in these spots when I can uh, not be pre-recording to where I won't be up to date with the list. There will be a podcast at some point where I will be in a place where I'm recording it fairly currently in comparison to when it's released, and I'll be able to update the list then. But if you leave a written review, it helps me stay more noticeable, A, among the 14 billion Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there, and it also helps me to know what you like or dislike about the show. Do you like these look-like things that we're doing, which we stole from the Dan Levitard show? Thank you, Dan. Do you not? Would you... I've gotten some Twitter feedback. Somebody didn't like the new music, and that's fine. Um, it's not, they said it was not as cool as the old bumper stuff. True. 
uh, I've never been especially interested in being cool, but I appreciate that you at least aired uh, your grievance with the new music. I hope that you don't mind that I've chosen instead to just go ahead and stick with it. Um, hopefully that won't deter you from listening to what happens after the music, because it's really a small part that you can skip over if you want any time. Uh, anyway, that's the kind of feedback that I like to get, and you can put it in the podcast app reviews. The written review kind helps best. I'll take stars too, but the written review kind helps best. Hey, have I rambled on enough and enough about the podcast? Let's instead start this first of what will probably be many episodes covering the history and lore sections of the Season 6 Blu-rays. We're just going to look at a couple this time around, and here we go. The Season 6 Blu-rays, they have a pretty extensive history and lore section this time around. There's 18 different stories, in fact. And all of them are acting as supplements to the stories that we've seen or heard about on the television show. And just as in past Season Blu-rays, they give some more detail into great houses, giving us some more information on places or cultures, and some give historical accounts from certain perspectives as well. And in this series of podcasts, we're going to be diving into small portions of them, a few at a time, and try to glean what we feel might be important from them in terms of how we feel about our characters and uh, what it might mean for the future or what answers might lie within them that we've been asking questions about in the television show. Now, if you don't have the Blu-rays, I can tell you that you can find all of the histories and the lores from just about every season uh, all you have to do is look on YouTube, or you can merely Google, in the case of these, Game of Thrones Season 6 History and Lore, and at least one will come up where you can get all of them in one setting, which is about an hour and 22 minutes worth of features um, on that particular uh, YouTube presentation. And I guess for this very first of many episodes, we're going to start with a couple of the bigger ones in terms of the history. And these two different stories are linked together by a historical event at a historical place. And you get the answer to that little riddle in the first one that we cover, which is titled The Tourney at Hall." That's the event and the place. This one is narrated by Mira Reed, and she's relaying a story told to her by her father, Helen Reed, as we listen. Years ago, in the height of summer, my father told my brother and me a story. He only told it once, and he refused to speak of it ever again. When he was a young man, in the year of the false spring, a great southern lord held the largest tourney Westeros had ever seen, in the largest castle Westeros had ever seen. Knights and lords from across the seven kingdoms made their way, drawn by the spectacle and the size of the champion's purse. Even the king was rumored to be attending, though none had seen him in years. Ours is a small house, and my father had come only to be part of the magnificence, whose like he'd never see again. One afternoon, he was walking across the field, enjoying the warm spring day, when he was set upon by three squires. None were older than fifteen, yet all were bigger than him. This was their world, as they saw it, and he had no right to be there. They snatched away his spear and knocked him to the ground, cursing him for a frog-eater. Every time he tried to rise, they shoved him down and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a shout. 
That's my father's man you're kicking! Howled the she-wolf. Lyanna Stark, the young daughter of Lord Rickard Stark, Warden of the North and my father's liege lord. Lyanna laid into the squires with a turning sword, scattering them all. My father was bruised and bloodied, so she took him back to her tent to clean his cuts and bind them up with linen. There, he met her brothers. Wild Brandon, who led them, the quiet Eddard, and Benjen, who was the youngest of the four. That evening, there was to be a feast in Harrenhal to mark the opening of the tourney, and Lyanna insisted that my father attend, as he was of high birth with as much a right to a place on the bench as any other man. She was not easy to refuse, this wolf maid, so my father borrowed suitable clothes from Benjen and went up to the great castle. Under Haran's great roof, my father ate and drank with his fellow Northmen. A black brother beseeched the knights to join the knight's watch, to snickers and smiles. Prince Rhaegar sang a song so sad that it brought tears to Lyanna's eyes. But when Benjen teased her for it, she poured wine over his head. Lord Baratheon drank down a night of skulls and kisses in a wine cup war. My father remembered a beautiful woman with purple eyes, who danced with Sir Barristan Selmy and several others. As the end of the evening approached, Brandon Stark asked her for one more dance on his shy brother's behalf. And so, Eddard Stark shared the last dance of the celebration with Lady Ashara Dane. Abruptly, the hall went quiet. The Mad King had come after all, and was now entering the hall with his Kingsguard. He hadn't left the Red Keep in years, and none could believe the state of him. His long yellow fingernails, tangled beard, and ropes of unwashed, matted hair made his madness plain to all. Nor was his behaviour that of a sane man, for in the blink of an eye he could go from hysterical laughter to weeping to rage. But when he commanded Sir Jamie Lannister to kneel before him and swear the oath of the Kingsguard before half the lords of the realm, a cheer burst from the crowd, for Sir Jamie was much admired for his courage, gallantry and skill with a sword. Amidst all this merriment, my father spied the three squires who'd attacked him, attending their knights. Lyanna saw them too, and pointed them out to her brothers. I could find you a horse and some armour that might fit, Benjen offered. My father thanked him, but gave no answer. Our people sit a boat more often than a horse, and our hands are made for oars, not lances. Much as he wished to have his vengeance, he feared he would only make a fool of himself and shame his people. Eddard had offered my father a place in his tent that night, but before my father slept, he knelt on the lake shore, looking across the water to the Isle of Faces, and said a prayer to the old gods. The next day in the tourney, the three knights whose squires had beaten my father unseated their opponents and earned a place among the champions. But late in the afternoon, as the shadows grew long, a mystery knight appeared in the lists. He was short and clad in ill-fitting armour cobbled together from different suits. On his shield was painted a heart tree of the old gods, a white weirwood with a laughing red face. The mystery knight dipped his lance before the king and rode to the end of the lists, where the five champions had their pavilions. You can guess the three he challenged. Whoever the mystery knight was, the old gods gave strength to his arm. All three knights fell before him. None were well loved, so the common folk cheered the knight of the laughing tree, as the new champion was soon called. When his fallen foes sought to ransom their horses and armor, the Knight of the Laughing Tree's voice boomed through his helm and told them, Teach your squires honour. That shall be ransom enough. Once the defeated knights chastised their squires sharply, their horses and armour were returned. And so, my father's prayer was answered. The king was furious. 
In his madness, he suspected a traitor in his midst. Perhaps even the newly made Sir Jamie Lannister, whom he had already sent back to the Red Keep. That night, the King asked Lord Robert Baratheon to take to the lists and unmask the Mystery Knight, declaring him no friend of his. But the next morning, when the heralds blew their trumpets and the King took his seat, the Knight of the Laughing Tree had vanished. All they ever found was his painted shield, hanging abandoned in a tree. My father's tale ended here. He never spoke more of Harrenhal, though he must have seen Prince Rhaegar's victory. Some whispered that Prince Rhaegar himself had arranged the entire tourney in secret as a way to gather the great lords and address his father's apparent madness, perhaps even remove him from the Iron Throne. But when I asked my father about this, he only shrugged sadly. What Rhaegar intended, none can say. But all know what he did. So what information do we find important here? Well, one important piece of information that we hear is that Lyanna Stark could hold her own against multiple squires when she came to the aid of Helen Reed, right? We also hear that Rhaegar had made her cry with a very sad song, and that when Benjen made fun of her for crying, she poured wine on his head. Now, given her caring for Halland after his injuries, and that she insisted that he be seated at a table of station with the rest of her family, we find her to be quite compassionate as well, especially to those loyal to her and her family. We also hear about the Mad King and his state, or lack of state of mind. There's nothing really new there except the detail about the unkempt look, but we're going to discuss that when we discuss the second feature in a little bit. And then we have this bit about Rhaegar himself. At least some speculations that he might have been meeting with the great lords of Westeros to possibly remove his father from power. And that's a pretty steep allegation. But Mira's father doesn't really seem to either confirm or deny that accusation. Instead, it just makes him sad. So let's piece all of that together with its relevance to the reveal of R plus L equals J first. Now, this particular Tourney of Harrenhal story is told in book three of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's relaying pretty much the same details that we hear in the story of the book, with the addition in the books of the crown of roses that Rhaegar gave Lyanna, making her the queen of love and beauty after he won. Now, we heard that part of the story from Littlefinger when he talked to Sansa in The Crypts of Winterfell in season five, actually in the show. But why would all of this be important? As we spoke about in the Jon Snow character profile podcast, this may be clues to Jon's true Targaryen status. We know he's a Targaryen, but what kind of Targaryen is he? Is he merely a bastard? No longer a bastard of Ned Stark, but instead a bastard of Rhaegar Targaryens. Or is a hint of love between both Lyanna and Rhaegar implied as opposed to him just merely kidnapping her and raping her? Was there possibly a marriage? After all, Aegon the Conqueror, we are told in prior history and lore sections, was married to both of his sisters, implying that polygamy is a precedent for Targaryens, as well as incest. So even if he was married to Elia already, why not be married to her and Lyanna, if Targaryens can do polygamy? Now, given Lyanna's compassionate nature, demonstrated in this story about Howland, you could say that even if she was raped, she would still love and want to protect any child born to her from what would surely be Robert Baratheon's wrath against the Targaryen line. 
But we also learn in this story that she could hold her own against three squires. Does that imply that she might have, and again, I'll just say might, might she have been able to evade being kidnapped by Rhaegar, at least to the point where help might come? Did she instead willingly go with Rhaegar? With stories that we've heard Barristan Selmy tell Daenerys in the show, Rhaegar actually doesn't seem to be the awful monster that the Stark and Baratheon stories seem to make him. So how does that play with this allegation that he was meeting with the lords of Westeros to remove his father from power? Do you feel it paints him as scheming or power hungry? Or do you feel that it paints him as a person who is trying to do what's best for the realm? And if the latter coupled with yet another story of him enjoying singing songs, most of them sad, it would seem, but if the latter, does he seem like a man who would kidnap or rape at all? On the other hand, was it possible that he was just some kind of horrible monster, and instead Liana, at the end, when she saw Ned, had in some way become succumbed to some kind of Stockholm Syndrome with a brutal captor? And why, again, does all of this matter? Well, if John is merely a bastard, then he has no more claim to the Iron Throne than, say, like Gendry, who evidently is still out there rowing somewhere. But if he is a trueborn son of Rhaegar, married to Lyanna Stark, and John is a result of the consummation of that marriage, then many possibilities can spring forth. Rather than just being a bastard nephew to Daenerys, he, by Westerosi tradition, actually has a better claim to the throne than she does. Now, she might still befriend him or accept him, or it might make John her enemy. And we must say again, there's not really any proof as of yet as to which way this story actually goes. And to be honest, we may never get a straight answer. But this history and lore definitely makes us ask questions, right? And there's even more fun layered into this story told by Mira. And again, we may never know a true definitive answer to this little mystery, but who was the Knight of the Laughing Tree that avenged Talon Reed? Was it Reed himself? Was it some kind of gift from the old gods that Reed prayed to? Was it someone else completely? Let's look at a couple of things that we've seen in the show and pair them up with some of the details in this story. We've seen brand visions of season six that Liana liked and seemingly rode horses very well. We hear in this story that she defended herself well against the squires and was evidently fierce enough to even send them fleeing. Also, the knight of the laughing tree was said to be small in stature with ill-fitting armor. Now, I can't speak for how big Liana would have been at this age and at this time, but would it not seem likely that Liana, despite any skills that she might have, would probably not have armor on her own? And if the tourney was a joust, meaning you had to have ability to ride horses, might she have had the skills in the fierceness to unseat three knights? Is she a possibility for the Knight of the Laughing Tree? On the flip side, what about the booming voice? Does that lend itself more towards some warrior gift from the gods? Or maybe even Halen Reed himself? During the first brand vision of the Tower of Joy, we saw Halen fight well, but pretty dirty. And here in this story, he seems unable to defend himself against the squires. So, could it have been one of the Stark boys instead? Brandon or Eddard or Benjen? Now, one would think that Brandon and Eddard would probably already have armor for themselves. I'm not sure about Benjen, but I think that Brandon and Eddard would probably most likely have armor. 
but perhaps to hide their identity, they were forced to use armor other than their own, making it ill-fitting. As for their size, that's something that can be disputed as well, though. So, as I said, there really are only questions and no real answers, but this is fun stuff to ponder. And speaking of the Stark Boys, what did you think of the nicknames? We find out that Brandon is the Wild Wolf. Is that given for his fierceness? Or for the fact that he and his father went charging into King's Landing to demand Lyanna be returned without any kind of real plan? Is that wild? Or how about Eddard being called the Shy Wolf because he was too shy to ask Ashara Dane for a dance? Remember that up until this point, Catelyn Tully was to marry Brandon, not Eddard. It wasn't until Brandon was killed that Catelyn became betrothed to Eddard. And speaking of Ashara Dane, that name Dane should ring a bell. That's Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, that rings that bell. He was the King's Guard that stood guard at the Tower of Joy. And I don't think the television show has given what Ashara's relation to Arthur was, but we can at least discount her being Arthur's wife, right? Because a King's Guard can't marry, and why would she be accepting dances from Barristan Selmy and the like? So there's a great irony here that Eddard had to face someone he admired, and we'll talk about that when we cover the House Dane feature in these Season 6 Blu-rays at some point in the future. But the woman that Eddard danced with at the feast at Hall is likely to be related in some way to Sir Arthur, and Eddard had to beat Arthur to get to his own sister. That's a nice little bit of irony, right? And then there's this for the youngest boy, Benjen. There is a mention regarding a member of the Night's Watch trying to recruit the boys to the cause, and all to smiles and snickering. So is this an indication that maybe Benjen never really wanted to join the Night's Watch? Did he even want to go when he did join? Or is it just possible that this meeting upon a later reflection was what sparked Benjen's interest in joining the Night's Watch? And finally, if you didn't already know, this story tells us that the tournament at Hall is where Jamie Lannister was sworn in as a Kingsguard. So, as you can see, just a few short minutes of story can spark just as much, if not more time, in pondering and conversation. And I'm going to build on that last little bit of information about Jamie to move on to this next Season 6 history feature that we're going to cover. It's titled Robert's Rebellion, and since even the very first season the history and lore sections have tackled different aspects of this war from multiple perspectives, including Robert and Tywin and Viserys. But now we get an account of things from the Kingsguard perspective through Jamie Lannister. And we get a lot of insight into his own past. Some of it's been told in the show. And we get some new information as well. Kingslayer. A word every man and woman in Westeros spits at me, though many can't even name the king I slayed. I understand. To them, I'm a symbol of everything they'll never have and a warning that'll never apply, so they can loathe me from the safety of their small lives. But when a dog goes mad, we put it down. Why not a king? I was never supposed to be on the King's Guard. Oh, as a boy, I dreamed of the White Cloak like all boys, but I was heir to Tywin Lannister, Hand of the King. If he forbade the tides, the waves would cease. Then I was 15, and my father was congratulating me on my new knighthood in the Red Keep. I wonder if that was the last time he was proud of me. 
That night, there was a knock on my door, and I opened it to find my sister Cersei disguised as a simple serving girl. I hadn't seen her since my father had taken her to court when she was 12. She had grown up, as had I. She told me that my father planned to marry me off to Lysa Tully, but she could arrange for the king to raise me to the king's guard so I could stay in the city with her. All I had to do was agree. I made the obvious objections. Our family, our father, Casterly Rock. Until she asked, Is it a rock you want? Or me? Come morning, she had my consent. I would join the king's guard for her. I would forswear my lands and title for her. I would forsake our family for her. Soon, a royal raven commanded my father to present me to the king during the great tourney at Harrenhal to say my vows. My father erupted in fury. He could not object openly, but he resigned the handship and returned to Casterly Rock, taking Cersei with him. Instead of being together, Cersei and I exchanged places. Then, everything started to fall apart. At Harrenhal, King Ares made a great show of my investiture. I knelt before him in gleaming armor and swore the oath of the king's guard. When Sir Gerald Hightower raised me up and put the white cloak on my shoulders, a roar went up from the crowd. I admit, despite my father's anger, I was happy and foolish. That very night, Ares soured, commanding me to return to the Red Keep to guard the queen and little Prince Viserys. Sir Gerald offered to take that duty himself so I might compete in the tourney, but Ares refused. He'll win no glory here, the king said. He's mine now, not Tywin's. He'll serve as I see fit. That was when I understood. It was not my skill or valor that had won me this honor. The Mad King had chosen me to spite my father and steal his heir. I wanted to rip off the White Cloak, but it was too late. A King's Guard serves for life. So I upheld my oath, confined to the Red Keep where Varys could watch me and where the headsman could find me if my father displeased the King. I served the king's pleasure as he burned Rickard Stark alive and strangled his son inciting the rebellion. I defended the king's honor against courtiers as his generals lost battle after battle with Robert. I kept the king's secrets when his pyromancers hid caches at wildfire beneath King's Landing. I gave the king counsel when my father's army was at the city gate and Grand Maester Pycelle lied that my father had come to save him. Many forget that I also tried to defend the king from harm. When the Lannister soldiers poured through the gates, it fell to me to hold the Red Keep as the only king's guard in the city. I knew we were lost and sent to Ares, asking his leave to make terms. My man came back with a royal command. Bring me your father's head if you are no traitor. Ares would have no yielding. His pyromancer was with him, my messenger said. I knew what that meant. Ares Targaryen was alone in his throne room when I found him, picking at his scabbed and bleeding hands. The fool was always cutting himself in the Iron Throne. Burn them, burn them, he kept muttering. Ares had decided to let Robert be king after all, over the charred bones and ashes of King's Landing. He must have thought his pyromancer was near enough to obey him, but I'd killed him a few minutes before in the courtyard. As I approached the throne, Sanity flashed behind the king's eyes for a moment, just long enough to read the look in mine. His eyes grew huge and the royal mouth drooped open in shock. He turned and ran. A single thrust was all it took to end the greatest dynasty the world had ever seen. Beneath 
the empty eyes of the dead dragons on the walls, the last dragon king squealed like a pig. So easy, I thought. A king should die harder than this. My father's knights burst into the hall in time to see the last of it, so there was no way for me to vanish and let some braggart steal the glory or blame. I knew at once when I saw the way they looked at me, it would be blame. Lannister or no, I'd been one of Aris's king's guard. I commanded them to announce that the Mad King was dead and to spare all those who yielded. They asked me if they should proclaim a new king as well. I knew what they meant. Would it be my father or Robert Baratheon or maybe the child Viserys who'd fled to Dragonstone? A Targaryen boy king with my father's hand to rule in truth. I thought of how Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon would howl at this end to their great heroic war and I was tempted. Then I glanced down again at Ares, his life's blood oozing from the wound and pooling on the floor around him. Proclaim who you bloody well like, I said. I climbed the steps to the Iron Throne and sat on it with my sword across my knees, waiting to see who would come to claim the kingdom. As far as the rebellion details itself goes, there's actually very little information that we haven't already heard, either in prior histories from the earlier season Blu-rays or in the television show itself. We kind of know about the caches of wildfire that Jamie knew he had to stop the Mad King from burning the city, and the fact that Jamie had been asked to kill his own father. But some of the things that eventually led up to some of the key events in the Lannister family are littered throughout this particular account, and they are definitely interesting insights. We'll get to those in a moment, but before we do, I kind of want to address the Mad King's last moments. Jamie says that a moment of sanity seemed to come upon Ares, who had been shouting burn them all just moments before. Now, we saw Bran digesting some of this action in the show during his massive download in the episode following the door. And in that door episode, we saw how Bran's reaching into the past changed Hodor's life forever. We also saw how Eddard seemingly heard something as he started to enter the Tower of Joy when Bran first visited there. And again, that was affected by Bran calling his name. Because of this, some have speculated that Bran's visions and the ability to affect those in the past as a result might be a reason why the Mad King went mad in the first place. Do you feel the sudden flash of sanity might be due to the fact that this is where Bran left the Mad King's mind? And even if Bran witnessed the killing of the Mad King, did he have to be in the Mad King's mind at that point? I believe that this is a determinist universe that Game of Thrones is set in. Let me just say that. Meaning it's one where the past, even if attempts are made from the future to alter it, only produces a known past. And because of that, I also feel like the future, since we see prophecies and such come true, is equally set in stone. But who or what is setting these things in stone? And think of this. If Mira's story makes the king seem mad back at the tourney of Hall, and some attribute that Bran's download is what made the Mad King mad. Do those people that think that also think that it might be possible that because of that we might see a future download of Bran looking at the tourney of Hall, Or perhaps even what followed it between Rhaegar and Lyanna, would all of that come through a Bran vision? Now, I don't really have any interest in telling you what to think about any of this. I'm just trying to bring up points that actually make me think, and I hope that you enjoy those points. 
So I'm going to leave it to you to pursue the question of the Mad King being under the influence of Brand's downloads for yourself. But again, the more fascinating stuff in this particular feature is in the Lannister details. For instance, we now know that Jamie and Cersei had sexual relations at the very least by the age of 15. And in this story, Jamie says that he had not seen Cersei since the age of 12 before that night. So even though there may have been slightly more than healthy affection for one another between the two of them when they were younger, I kind of choose for myself to believe that this was their first sexual experience together. And it was the night that Jamie was first anointed a knight. Not yet a king's guard, but a knight. And we find out it was Cersei's idea for Jamie to become a king's guard so that her and Jamie would be close. Yet we don't really know why Cersei had been with her father at the Red Keep in the first place. Yes, Tywin was the hand of the king, and maybe Cersei was just living with him as opposed to living at Casterly Rock on her own. But due to Cersei's flashback with the witch's prophecy, another example of a determinist universe in terms of the future, for me. But Cersei told the witch that she was very eager to be Rhaegar's betrothed. However, because these events seem to happen so closely to the tourney of Harrenhal, and thus the beginning of Robert's Rebellion, coupled with the fact that Rhaegar had at least two children with Aaliyah, Oberyn's sister, I would think that at this point Rhaegar would have already been married to Aaliyah and Cersei would have been rejected. So, while there may be no real answer as to why Cersei was still at the Red Keep with her father, what does Cersei's reasoning for coming to Jaime with this idea at all say about Cersei? After all, she did seem, in that flashback, to be very excited to be marrying Rhaegar. And remember that in Season 1, when speaking to Ned in the You Win or You Die episode, she also seemed just as excited to be starting her life with Robert Baratheon until he disappointed her by calling her Lyanna. So, this leads me to ask the question, has Jamie always been Cersei's second choice? And what does that say about their whole torrent, scandalous affair that has had part in causing wars? I mean, did she only choose Jamie when she had no hope of marrying Rhaegar? And did she only return to Jamie after Robert had disappointed her? And once again, this story demonstrates Jamie's famous saying, the things we do for love. We hear that before this, Jamie had every intent of being a good Lannister of Casterly Rock and heir to his father Tywin. And that was until Cersei convinced him to renounce lands, titles, and all just out of love for her. And the chain of events are ironic as well, as Jamie says. The making of Jamie as a Kingsguard actually takes Cersei away from him once again, rather than bringing him close to her. We heard in prior history and lores that Tywin had resigned being Hand, though I don't recall if an exact reasoning had been mentioned, and I might have to look at all of the Blu-ray sections to be able to know, but at least here we did get a definitive reason. Ares, who once again in past Blu-ray's histories we had heard had been jealous of Tywin and his ability to run the kingdom for Ares, and because of that jealousy, it now seems that he took Rhaegar away from Cersei and Jaime away from Tywin just despite his hand of the king. And this was pretty much what was the last straw for Tywin. And that's all a lot to unpack out of one little story. And I hope you enjoyed some of these points even if you don't agree with them. Like I said, don't think the way I do. Just merely think for yourself. And feel free to share those thoughts with me anytime. Speaking of which... 
we do have a piece of feedback to give you. Feedback. So this piece of feedback actually came through an iTunes review by Say J. Bale, who I thanked uh, for leaving a review before. Thank you once again for leaving this review. Uh, and I didn't include uh, any quotes from the iTunes review before because I wanted to save it for a piece of feedback, and I've got some opportunity here. Anyway, Say J. Bale, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce that. I'm terrible at this stuff. I'm very Stugatzian when it comes to saying names. Anyway, it says, Matt, ever since I listened to your perspective about prophecy in Game of Thrones, I can't help but think that Daenerys will not make it to the end of the TV series and die in the North. The reason being, in her vision in the House of the Undying in the TV show, she visits the burnt throne room and then is in the north, and she sees called Drogo and Rego. I hope I'm wrong. We'll see what happens. So, yes, she gets to the Iron Throne. Uh, the throne room seems to have been destroyed. I'm not sure if that's fire or snow falling in there or ashes or snow, but whatever it is, it, there's obviously nothing there for her. She does go north of the wall, and we all know she needs dragons, uh, or th- probably dragons would help the fight against the White Walkers, so that makes sense. And then seeing Khal Drogo and Rego north of the wall would make sense if she was joining them in death there. I think that's great analysis. Um, I appreciate you taking that in there. And um, I am fearful as well, just in terms of looking at that interpretation of it. Um, And if it is a determinist universe, then uh, for sure, that's what that is. Uh, We can hope, the one thing we can cling to that we can hope is that this was merely the trick of the priests of the House of the Undying in order to keep her distracted and away from her dragons until they could chain her up. One can only hope that it was just false information being fed to her or it was being fed to her in a way that she would misinterpret it or that we would misinterpret it as seeing it through her eyes. We can hope that, but it doesn't seem really all that likely. We have seen Melisandre misinterpret visions before, you know, because she thought she was seeing Stannis and then she thought she was seeing John and now she's not with either of them. So um, we may yet uh, see that there was, there's just a misinterpretation here uh, through Danny's eyes that we saw in the television show, but there's very little reason to believe that at this point. So I think that your, uh, your prediction here is uh, pretty sound and really sad. Um, I can say that uh, the author of the books, George R. R. Martin, has promised a bittersweet ending to this series of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I'm sure that Dave and Dan will adhere to that as well. So I, I can't imagine John and Danny both surviving the war with the White Walkers, um, but we will have to see what happens. Thanks so much for that feedback. I really appreciate it, or for that thought that you included in your iTunes review. And folks, we're going to be sprinkling some of these history and lore episodes throughout the future as we keep marching towards the return of Season 7. And we're also going to have my Season 7 co-host, Donald, on to join us for a discussion of the White Walkers in the near future, as well as we're going to have a look at Littlefinger and some other characters as well from Game of Thrones. But for now, because of my touring and travel schedule... I've got to place the podcast on a small hiatus. I apologize. I know people, there are some people who just love to get Game of Thrones content. 
every week on a weekly basis. And if I had the ability to record as much on the road, I probably would find a way to keep up. But you're spending a lot of time in vans and there's a lot of noise and you spend a lot of time, you know, playing when normally I could be watching an episode or getting clips from my DVDs and such. Um, and the laptop just doesn't sound as good. You heard an episode that I did on my laptop uh, a couple of months ago. Just doesn't sound as good, does it? And uh, that's even using the same mic. So that's just weird. I don't understand why how that is the way it is. But uh, I tried uh, tried using the same mic, and it, maybe I was maybe I'm just too dumb about this laptop and don't understand whether I switched the mics or not. Maybe that's it. No. Yeah, probably. Anyway, uh, I would love to give you content uh, every week, but it's just not going to be possible for me this year. Um, I will give it to you as often as I possibly can, and I thank you so much for staying subscribed and staying with me. We will return on March 15th of 2017 with new episodes, and I hope that you'll stick around to join us. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening to these, and contact me. Let me know what you're thinking about any of these podcasts that we've been doing for the last half a year. Uh, now that I'm back into the television show, I'm having a lot of fun doing the character profiles, really having fun uh, just looking at some of these history and, and lore from the Blu-rays, and uh, looking forward to having Donald along with me to dissect the new season, as well as being on some episodes prior to that. So let me know what you're thinking. Here's Axel Foley, that's at W Axel Foley on Twitter, from the Small Council podcast. All those guys, want to say hi to them over there, uh, who used to do the initial reactions with me over on this podcast. Here he is from Small Council Podcast, that's at Small Council Pod on Twitter, to tell you how to contact me. In the meantime, take care and thanks for listening. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.